What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've uh, got a question or two about the Catholic faith, let's uh, give that question a shot. We will try to answer it for you uh, on on this program in the next hour or so. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Now, if you're listening to us in, um, hmm, what are we up to? I think we're up to the Ks. I'll have to work on the Ks. Anyway, if you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming on both platforms right now. Just uh, put that question of yours in the comments box, if you would, please. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio. Hopefully, we can answer your question on today program. Again, the phone number 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How was your weekend, sir? Uh, You know, it was a good weekend. Glad to hear that. Thank you. We're going to uh, lead off with a question here from Colleen. This actually came in over the weekend last weekend. Colleen says, I know that our Christian brothers and sisters believe the rapture comes and takes all saved souls to heaven. My Catholic friend believes the same thing. She said, read the book of Revelation. Well, (laughs) I need help explaining the truth about this to her. Thank you, Colleen. Yeah, thanks, Colleen. I appreciate the question. So um, there is nothing in the book of Revelation that suggests that Christ is going to come secretly in the night and rapture, quote-unquote, true believers away and, and leave the rest of the world behind to suffer a great tribulation. There's plenty in the book of Revelation that discusses uh, tribulation that will occur, but nothing in there that suggests that the saints will be spared that by being uh, secreted away in the middle of the night. Okay. Um, and in fact, the whole the whole idea of the saved and the damned. I mean, from a Catholic point of view, salvation requires perseverance until the end, and that's what Jesus says explicitly. When the great tribulation comes, those who persevere to the end will be saved. Right. So um, you you can't you can't know that in advance. Even though I understand that's that's a, a important dogma to fundamentalists, the idea that they think they can know for sure that they're going to be saved in the future. Mm-hmm. That's not what Scripture tells us, and Christ tells us you you got to persevere. So um, the rapture business was an invention of a 19th century fundamentalist named uh, uh, Darby, John Nelson Darby of the Plymouth Brethren movement, and before Darby. No one in all of Christian history, not Catholic, not Protestant, had ever heard of or imagined uh, such a thing. I mean, Martin Luther, John Calvin, the founders of the Protestant movement, certainly didn't know anything about it, and most Protestants don't believe it. It's a small subset of the Protestant world, basically the fundamentalist world, and it really only caught on in the United States in the early 20th century. So it's you know it's had a lot of traction since then and produced some best-selling popular 
um, novels and and so-called theology texts. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think people are are naturally drawn to apocalyptic prophecy because they are fed up with the state of the world and they think you know that the that the system is out to get them or something. And the idea of everybody else getting what's coming to them, and I and my set get you know get to get taken out of here. That's that has a kind of visceral appeal to a certain personality, mm-hmm. which understands the longevity of this myth. But it is just that a myth, and it really distracts from the important work of being the church in the world and and uh, being salt and light to our neighbors, not just by uh, preaching the gospel with our words, but by our actions, trying to incarnate mm, the wisdom yeah. and justice and, and charity of God towards our neighbor. And obviously, if you think you're going to be taken out in a you know in a fireball in the next five minutes, it, it, it decreases your motivation to you know maybe see, contribute to the soup kitchen next door. Colleen, thanks so much for your email. Here's a, a question that just came in on YouTube. Cairo is watching us this afternoon. Cairo says, "How do we determine God's will versus our own will?" Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So, God's will is 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 described for us in, in some depth, actually, in Scripture and the tradition of the Church and the teaching of the Church. And so, you know, to know in general terms what you're supposed to do, well, you're supposed to love God above all things, love your neighbor as yourself, and that cashes out in terms of the development of the virtues in your life, uh, principally prudence, you know, the, the virtue of good decision-making, how to make rational, wise choices and understand your situation in life, um, justice, how to do right by your neighbor, Fortitude, how to how to stick it out and persevere when times are tough, and temperance, how to how to resist your passionate urges for bodily pleasure and other kinds of uh, sensorial amusements, um, and then of course the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So you know, come to develop those through through habits of good works and um, incarnate the Sermon on the Mount in your life. Be a peacemaker, hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, be pure in heart, that sort of thing. So that that's really the job of a Christian is to is to perfect our character out of reverence for uh, God and out of imitation of Jesus, and that that is applicable in season and out of season, day in day night. Saint Augustine said that every Christian prayer, every aspiration of the Christian heart, ultimately to reflect uh, the petitions of the Lord's prayer, which are what I just said. You know, praying that God's kingdom comes means praying that I would come to incarnate to live out these these virtues. And when it comes to real particulars about choices that I make in life, I mean, a lot of these uh, seem to be almost morally irrelevant. Like, should I put, uh, you know, American or Dijon mustard on my hamburger? Right? <laughs> I, you know, I really, honestly, I don't think that that's an indifferent, that's a morally indifferent kind of question. And and so things like your own personal preference can play into that, and quite reasonably. I mean, it would be kind of silly to put the wrong kind of mustard on that you don't like. Take the mustard that you like. And you can extrapolate to other kinds of decisions. You know, if you're, you know, should I... Uh, you know, should I study to be a paralegal, for example, or should I push all the way and go to law school and, you know, seek to be an attorney? Well, what kind of life do you want to live? What kind of disposition do you have towards school and mm-hmm. to times with your family? And, you know, the, those kinds of prudent choices are reasonable, and we have a moral obligation to live according to reason. So you don't have to get a kind of penetrating light and a voice from heaven that says, go to law school, <laughs> to know that it's the will of God. You know, don't don't look for those kinds of thunderbolt moments. Yeah. If they happen, they happen. But most of us live without them for most of our life, and, and that's perfectly okay. Cairo, thanks so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Hey, calls are coming in right now, but there's room for you at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. It's called a communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us.
Glad you're with us on this Monday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Here's something wonderful now available from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the Miraculous Metal with Hearts Pendant and Earring Set. This beautiful set includes a sterling silver pendant and matching earrings, featuring a small miraculous metal surrounded by four open hearts and four sapphire blue cubic zirconia stones. This one-inch pendant is attached to an 18-inch platinum-plated chain. Earrings also measure one inch. They have surgical stainless steel French wire hooks with rubber backstoppers to secure the hooks. My wife says that's the best way to go right there for those earrings. This exclusive EWTN design made right here in the USA. It comes in a blue velvet gift box. Do check it out right now at EWTNRC.com. Again, you want to look for the Miraculous Metal with Hearts pendant and earring set. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with Lynn, a first-time caller from Atlanta, watching us today on YouTube. Hey there, Lynn. What's on your mind today? Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was in a conversation with my Lutheran and Baptist friend, and my Lutheran friend said that from the pulpit, her pastor said that if you confess that you believe in Jesus, you will be saved. No strings attached. My uh, Baptist friend and I tried to give our perspective on that, and then, ironically, this happened on Tuesday. On Thursday, I believe it was, I watched your show. You dealt with a very similar manner. So I sent them that link. They both watched it. One said, she'll get back to me after she talks to her pastor. The other said, the Baptist said, please read John 10, 25, 10. And in that, that's where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. I'd like to be able to discuss intelligently with them and in a non-confrontational manner what the Catholic view is. I thought I had done that Tuesday, but I don't think I was very persuasive, so I would appreciate your input. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So there's no doubt in John chapter 10 that those whom Christ uh, has identified as his sheep will certainly be saved. And in Catholic doctrine, those are referred to as the elect, and we recognize that some people are elect. There, There is a subset of the human race that will most certainly be saved, and they will be saved uh, because God intends to grant to them the gift of perseverance. Right? And perseverance, like, to get saved, you have to persevere. That's sure, the trick, you know? sure. You know, you have to make it to the end of the line. You could live a perfectly good <clears throat> Christian life for 30 years and then give it all up in a minute, and, and you're, you know, you're toast. And St. Peter says in Second Peter 2, you'd be better off not having been Christian to begin with than to, you know, give up the, the race, you know, when you're halfway through. Um, and so you got to make it all the way to the end of the line. Now, here's the position that we, we're not in. Like, just because you're on the road right now, you can't say, I've got this thing licked, I'm going to make it to the end. Like, you don't know that from right. your current position. Like, those who make it to the end will absolutely be saved. That's who we call the elect. But how do you know you're one of them? Now, you can't say, well, you know, I... I hear the Word of God proclaimed, and my, my heart rejoices, and I love the Mass, and I, I do good to my neighbor, and you know, I have all these, have all these indications that, I am, that I'm one of the elect. Yeah, well, lots of people have those who walk away. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, the, the Catholic position is much more honest. It's, it's faithful to Scripture as well, and that is we don't know who the elect are. We don't know who the elect are. We don't know who's going to have the gift of perseverance. Now, whoever they are, Christ is 
made a place for them. He set aside eternity for them, and their reward is certain. We don't know if you're in that camp until you actually do the work of persevering. And uh, the, the alternative to that, which I think is, is not biblical, uh, but it is the way that many Protestants go, is to say, well, there, there are two kinds of internal assurance, right? There are two kinds of people, both of whom claim to have hearts strangely warmed by the preaching of the gospel, both of which would seem to exhibit good works and charity and, you know, to have a certain kind of affective relationship to the Word of God. They hear scriptures proclaimed, and it warms their hearts, and they love the sound of it. They can't wait to get to church. Mm -hmm. The two types of people can be in that situation. Those whose faith is somehow, quote-unquote, genuine, and, and those in whom that experience is a mere appearance, that there's some kind of uh, you know, uh, uh, some kind of uh, viciousness in it. There's some deformed quality to that to that interior life that would that would suggest that it's that it's spurious. You know, that's not for real. But you you can't actually specify what that is, right? So any person who says, "I know for sure I'm saved," someone else looking at them from the outside could say, "Well, maybe," unless you're one of the ones that has like the fake faith, right? You know. <laughs> Because they all recognize, everybody recognizes that some people are going to walk away, right? And the Protestant, typically, when somebody walks away, they go, oh, well, they never really had true faith to begin with. Right? Regardless of how they presented themselves, the conclusion is, well, they must not have had real faith to begin with. So how do you know you're one of the ones that has the quote-unquote real faith? Like, that's an insoluble dilemma if you're a Protestant who believes in absolute assurance. And the irony was put by a friend of mine. He put it this way. He said, uh, well, the elect know for sure they're going to heaven, and I might be one of them. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's a paradox that you can't get out of. Yeah. And the solution is to recognize that we don't have absolute assurance of salvation. We have absolute assurance of the offer of grace. We have absolute assurance of Christ's mercy. We have absolute assurance of the conditions of salvation. We have absolute assurance about the path. We have absolute hope that it is possible to us. Uh-huh. But you don't have assurance until you're looking back after the fact. You don't know for sure you're saved until you can say, you know, blessed be God, here I am in eternity, right? And and so what your Protestant friends do is they take passages like this completely out of context, and particularly out of context with the rest of Scripture, which, of course, is replete with warnings about the danger of apostasy. Mm-hmm. I mean, Book of Hebrews, Book of 1 John— uh, you know, the synoptic gospels, you name it, all of them warn against the real possibility, Romans, Second Peter, warning against the real possibility of shipwrecking your faith and losing the whole thing, right? You have to take all of that into account. And then you know, the, 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 the psychological dilemma of what happens if you assert of myself, I know for sure I'm going to heaven, knowing full well that your neighbor said that last week and then went committed adultery and, you know, left his wife and shipwrecked his faith, mm, yeah. right? So I, I, the for me, as a Catholic who's a convert from Protestantism, I found that insistence upon absolute assurance to be kind of maddening because it, it actually creates the burden in the soul of, you know, you're kind of like the little engine that could. You, you kind of walk around through life going, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, I think I'm saved, you know. And then you get struck by this doubt, oh, but maybe I'm one of the fakers. Maybe it, maybe it's not real in me. Maybe it's only real in my neighbor. Maybe I'm really not one of the elect. Oh, I may not be saved. I may not be saved. Oh, but but I think I saved. I think I saved, you know. Just stay on the path, yes. friend. That's the way to have hope. Not, not absolute rock-bottom certainty, but hope. Hope that Christ is real. Hope that he will save me. Hope that the grace is there available to me. Hope that I can make it to the end because he really is there accompanying me. As long as I don't take my hand out of his or yeah. take my off the path, I can make it. Lynn, is that helpful for you? 
Very, and um, it offered some different points than what you said last week, which I believe was Thursday. So together I'm going to review them both and hope that I can as elegantly and eloquently explain it to my friends. So I thank you very much. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lynn. You can also check out the podcast of both those shows by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Once you're there, click on the words Podcast Central. You'll find uh, these shows in alphabetical order. Just scroll down a little bit. You'll see Call to Communion, and there you go. Thanks again for your call from Atlanta. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to Communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Marie now. Marie is in Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on the Great Spirit Catholic Radio. Hi, Marie. Happy Monday. What's on your mind today? Hello. Thank you for taking the call. Sure. I have a good friend who's a recent convert from Protestantism who's ready to convert back to Protestantism due to the fact that the Church is not, uh, according to her, proving to be that beacon of hope and truth and standing up for uh, things that are being said and not being said out of the Vatican, uh, the agreement with China, the support of or lack of support of gender identity, uh, etc. I don't know, other than convincing her that the Church has been through worse before, I do not know what, if there's anything I could say to this former Protestant who's ready to revert back uh, to give her faith in that becoming Catholicism was correct. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So I, uh, if I were sitting down with coffee with your friend, I would tell her that she had false expectations about the nature of the charism of infallibility, uh, or of the the teaching office and the uh, of the of the church and the way the truth of tradition is is lived and exemplified. I think she had really false expectations. Understandable false expectations because there's a narrative out there in the world, and it's it's a uh, uh, on the part of many non-Catholics, but on the part of some Catholics as well, um, that say, for example, the Pope's personal policy decisions are to be revered by Catholics as somehow, you know, the infallible way to go in the world, right? And uh, that there's a technical term for this. It's called ultramontanism. It's a term that was coined in the 19th century to refer to the attitude that says, you know, whatever the Pope does or whatever the bishops do, we're on board no matter what without qualification, a kind of knee-jerk, you know, uh, loyalty to anything that comes out of the Vatican. And and to be fair, there's a, you know, uh, you know, there's there's a media arm of the Vatican. There's a public relations arm. Yes. That has some interest in promoting that vision of the world. Obviously, the Pope wants his policy pronouncements to be acted on, you know, in the civil domain and so forth. And so there's a, you know, that's, that's, that's an attitude that you'll find on the part of some Catholics, too. It's not the historic view of the papacy or the bishops or their role in the Church, um, and it's not what the First Vatican Council taught, which defined the dogma of infallibility. Um, and uh, here's an illustration of what I'm talking about. John Henry Cardinal Newman, uh, who is a saint— he was a canonized saint and probably the greatest 
English-speaking theologian of the 19th century, maybe the greatest Catholic theologian of the 19th century, who's, who's in the running for being a doctor of the church. There's a cause right now to have him named doctor of the church. So he's really an authoritative Catholic figure. Um, at the time of the First Vatican Council, which is an infallible teaching of the Catholic Church, and all Catholics are bound to hold what Vatican I said, uh, Newman included, Newman took the position that Vatican I was a mistake. Not false, you understand. Not wrong in what it said, yeah. but an imprudent thing to do. Okay. So his position with respect to the council is what we call inopportunism. He says, yeah, I think the council taught truth, but that was a truth that had would be better left unsaid. Now, you can agree with him or disagree with him. My yeah. point is to show the nuance that a Catholic can take with, with regard to even an infallible pronouncement. You're not obligated to hold that any decision of the pope or bishops, even including the pronouncement of an infallible dogma, is prudent. Prudent means it was the right thing to do at that time. And the history of the papacy, the history of the episcopacy, the history of the priesthood shows that built into the fabric of the church from the beginning, from the time of the appointment of the apostles by Jesus, that the hierarchy is riddled with imprudent decisions. I mean, Pope Peter the first massively imprudent decision at Antioch about the incorporation of Gentiles. Mm -hmm. There's never been an age of the church where popes or bishops have been guaranteed in their practical prudence. And so, you know, am I obligated morally to believe that, say, some medieval or Renaissance pope was making a good decision when he decided to raise an army and declare war on Florence or some <laughs> Italian city-state, yeah. you know, which happened. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not obligated to think that was a good idea. Right? That's just not how infallibility works. It's not how the teaching office of the, of the church works. So what infallibility means is, is, first of all, that when the church pronounces a matter of faith or doctrine to be believed by all the faithful, you know, solemnly as something uh-huh. de- revealed by God, then they're not wrong about the fact of the truth in the, of the matter, right? So I'm obligated to believe that. And secondly, that the, the, the faith, the, 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 the integrity of the faith, the integral faith, the deposit of faith, will be faithfully handed down through the generations so that men and women can lay hold of it and be saved. Now, I mean, that, that's just true. That's just, that's just, I mean, any, you just look at history. Has the gospel, as defined by the Catholic Church and the councils, been proclaimed by the church and made available to the faithful such that souls can come to holiness for 2,000 years? Emphatically, yes. Emphatically, in spite of the imprudence or the foolishness of members of the hierarchy. I mean, you know, when, when St. Francis initiated his massive reform of religious life in the 12th century, he lived in a time of enormously imprudent and immoral bishops. He didn't lose any sleep over it at all. His business was to get up and follow Jesus. Yeah. He laid hold of the deposit of faith as taught by those very same imprudent men, put it into practice heroically and generously in his own life, and changed the world. Right? That's the way you approach the infallibility of the Church and its fruitfulness in the lives of the saints not in the prudence or lack thereof of any particular minister. So I just think your friend had, had, had grossly uh, inappropriate misconceptions. Secondly, I think it's harmful to the soul to, to construe the truth of the Catholic faith in terms of the imposition of, a, of an ideological policy. Right? Once I start thinking that my job as the Church is to, is to impose a political program, no matter how wise or sane it might be, Mm-hmm. Uh, upon my neighbor, 
and that making a kind of political stand in the public sphere is, that is the litmus test for truthfulness or fidelity to the gospel. Remember what Jesus said when Pilate confronted him? Nothing. Nothing. There's a lot of ways to display heroic witness. Yeah. Right? Sometimes silence. Absolutely. Marie, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, In a moment, we'll be talking with Joseph in Cleveland, Mike, a first-time caller from New York. We also have a couple of uh, questions via Facebook and YouTube. Going to get to that, and hopefully your phone call at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Glad you could join us for the uh, Monday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. couple lines open for you, and it's not too late to call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we get to Mike in New York, this quick question from Melita watching us on Facebook today. Melita says, Hi, Dr. Anders. I know you've explained this before, but... What is the deeper meaning of the scripture which states, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am there? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the context of this remark is that of church discipline. So Jesus is actually talking about the church passing judgment in judicial matters about about unrepentant sinners. And so the decision to excommunicate someone, to expel them from the fellowship of the church, is ratified in heaven as it is on earth. When Jesus says... What have you behind on earth is bound in heaven? I mean, the context of the remark is specifically in the context of church discipline. Okay. Right? So that's, that's never the way the text is used in, in popular preaching. Usually the way you'll hear it delivered is, you know, if, if, if you and Sally get on the phone in your prayer chain and, and ask God to, you know, to heal Beth's, you know, busted kneecap— that whatever you agree on earth, God will do in heaven. The, the, the kneecap is as good as healed, right? That, that's the way you usually hear this. But the context says nothing about that. It, it's, about, it's about ratifying a disciplinary decision uh, that the church articulates. And, you know, to, to put that in real practical terms for most of us, uh, it really goes to the issue of communion in the church. And a lot of times we'll hear people say, well, you know, why can't my Baptist friend, or I'm a Baptist, why can't I receive communion in the Catholic church? And it's because for a Catholic— we have a there's a there's an actual jurisdiction that the church and its tribunal has over my conscience and and today that is exercised within the confessional like that's that's the forum where i can signal to the priest uh, my contrition and he uh-huh. can validate yes you're you're in fact contrite and i absolve you and that authorizes you to participate in the communion of the church and to receive holy communion and non-catholics are are not within that tribunal they put themselves outside the church's jurisdiction Completely. And so that you know, there's no way the church can pass judgment on their soul and determine whether or not they're fit to receive communion. So so this is a matter of jurisdiction. You know, what, Catholic Church doesn't judge non-Catholics. The saying you can't come to communion isn't passing judgment and saying you're a bad person. It's literally saying we can't pass judgment on you. We have no way to determine whether you're fit for communion because you don't submit to the church's jurisdiction. 
To a Catholic, the church can say, come or don't come, depending on your disposition. To a non-Catholic, we, we can't do that. Okay. You know, re- jurisdiction is real. The church's disciplinary authority is real. That's what Matthew 18 says. Melita, thanks so much for checking us out this afternoon on Facebook. Call to communion here on EWTN. Not too late to call 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. All right, now let's go to Mike, a first-time caller from New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Mike. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, hi. I wanted to ask a question about the concepts of heaven and hell, but primarily hell. Um, as a child, I had cold sweats going to a Catholic school and hearing about the idea that I'm supposed to love some being that uh, would potentially condemn me to torture for an eternal period of time. And, you know, I, not, I'm not 100% sure that that, that, that concept is, is totally wrong and that what we're talking about here is homilies much as Christ would have. Uh, in other words, you, you're... you're Salvation in heaven would be so unbelievably bad to lose, but not that somebody would actually torture me. Yeah, I, I profoundly appreciate your dilemma. I, I'm, 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 I'm deeply empathetic to it uh, because I stand in the precisely, precisely the same subjective position, right, in that I cannot wrap my head personally around the rationality of a doctrine of eternal punishment. I, I can't, right? So what do I do with that as a Catholic? Um, uh, so first of all, I recognize that it is a dogma of the faith. Mm-hmm. So I cannot reject it. I, I accept the teaching as a dogma. So I want to kind of dig in a little bit and penetrate the nature of dogma in a way that would be applicable not only to the doctrine of hell, but to all the doctrines of the Church. Um, and I'm very, personally, I'm helped by a passage from the Catechism of the Catholic Church that says, dogmas don't save us. It is rather the reality to which they point that saves us. Um, Another text says that dogmas are lights, L-I-G-H-T-S, lights, that they illumine our path and make it secure. The way I understand that is that there is a kind of existential cash value to a dogma. In other words, it doesn't do me any good to just affirm a dogma and hang it on the shelf, so to speak, in, in the conceptual architecture of my Catholic life. It's something that ought to illumine my way of being in the world. It ought to have real value in the way I approach myself. I think about the human condition. I think about my neighbor. I think about the moral life. I think about my own spiritual aspirations. And when I, when I, when I look at the way dogma is lived mystically within the history of the Catholic tradition, that's definitely the way it works out. So you take somebody like St. Augustine. He writes a whole massive treatise on the doctrine of the Trinity, the dogma of the Trinity, but what does the Trinity mean to him in, in real, like, in terms of spiritual value? Well, it was an opportunity for him to reflect upon the tripartite nature of human personality, that the dogma of the Trinity illuminates to him something about his own psychology, something about his own moral and spiritual experience. And, and recognizing that stated abstractly, it's bizarre. The Trinity is a strange doctrine, but taken as a light taken as a kind of mystical provocation, it opens up something to me about my own spiritual condition. And, of course, the, the absolute value of community, right, which is, that's the heart of the Trinitarian mystery, is that uh-huh. God is a, is a communion of persons. Mm-hmm. And it places the communion of persons at, like, the, at the, 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 the metaphysical place where the buck finally stops, right? That's, a, that's an incredible value to say is the ultimate value, the value of love, right? That's ultimately the, that's the cash value of the Trinity in my life. It's not 
trying to rationalize, you know, how can the thing be three in one? It's, it's the existential value of saying, yeah, unity within community is, uh, is the ultimate spiritual value to which I ought to conform my life. Uh, there's a great book on the history of Christian mysticism by an Orthodox theologian named Andrew Luth. And uh, this is exactly the point that he makes about the origins of the dogmatic and the mystical tradition. He says that they, they evolved at the same time in the Church's history. The dogmas evolved along with the mystical experience, and that the dogma is an attempt to, to rationally and coherently express um, the spiritual experience of the inner life of Christians who, who met God in the face of Christ. Right? So Trinity and Incarnation are an abstract way of expressing what the church's life and prayer had always been from the beginning, which is this encounter with God in the person of Jesus. And, uh, and so I bring all of that architecture, all of that background to my bearing and the understanding of hell. I, I, I don't know how to make rational sense of hell, but I know this, that when it comes to the afterlife in general, the church has always taught that, that my moral and spiritual experience today is the beginning of my eternity. And so there's a deep continuity, for example, between the beatific vision, what I experience in the life of heaven, and, and the life of grace today, right? The, the beatific vision is nothing other than the vision of God in his essence in the depths of my soul, that I, that I come to be penetrated by the goodness and light and beauty of God in a way that's overwhelming to my personality. Well, I only get that in the afterlife if I've begun to experience that same kind of illumination today. Right? The life of grace now just intensified is eternity. And so I can flip that around and say, well, you know, if hell is the loss of the vision of God, if hell is the, the absence of God, alienation from God, well, that's, that also illumines my present experience. Like, I can start to experience hell today. Okay? And, and all you have to do is spend a little time with people uh, or look into the depths of your own heart and see the moments when you know, when when I was lost, when you were lost in the depths of my own concupiscence and, and, uh, and egotism and self-regard. And, uh, and what I find there is not a happy place, you know. And, and if hell is an abstract statement of, uh, you know, a grand metaphysical reality, but of something of which I have present-day experience. Like I've, you know, uh, I heard Father Emmerich Vaux say one time, he says, religion is for people who don't want to go to hell and spirituality is for people who have already been there. <laughs> right, that's a that's a that's a pithy way of stating what I'm trying to get at, yeah, right? Yeah. That I, I can't make rational sense of the dogma, but I can turn around and let it illumine my present experience in a way that calls to my mind this the what's at stake, the severity, the need, the depths of human joy uh, and human misery that I can work for myself through the reality of my moral experience. Hope that's helpful for you. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for your call today. It's Call to Communion here on EWTN. Tonight on The Journey Home with John Mark Grodi. That'll be at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Richard Wilson joins the program to discuss his Protestant upbringing, also how he felt a higher calling to serve the Lord as a Catholic priest. That's uh, Richard Wilson tonight on The Journey Home with John Mark Grodi at 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN radio and television. Let's go now to uh, Jeff in Tulsa listening on the great St. Michael Radio. Hey there, Jeff. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, Dr. Anders, I have a question for you, and please forgive me because I know I'm going to butcher his name, uh, but uh, the question is about Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. Did I get even close? Yeah, yeah, you're good. I know who you're talking about. Okay. He uh, was a Jesuit priest in the mid 
20th century, who uh, his teachings and writings all revolved around evolution, not just biological, but spiritual evolution, how God is trying to uh, evolve us into a new kind of Christianity toward the Omega Point, as he called it. His, uh, he, he was banned uh, during his lifetime from publishing or teaching his theories, and he was even exiled to China for much of his life. Um, and yet, in his recent travels to Mongolia, Pope Francis quoted extensively from Deschardins. And so I'm wondering, was, was Deschardins uh, a mystic whose writings, uh, which are now published, uh, need to need concerted effort and focused effort to gain the wisdom from them? Or was he a pseudo-scientist, pseudo-philosopher, pseudo-theologian, and the Church was right to suppress his writings? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question, except I regard it as a false dichotomy. Uh-oh. Right? So there are other options other than a true mystic, and a, on the one <clears> hand, <throat> or a pseudoscientist on the other. Like, there's there's other ways we construe the, the, the legacy of the Chardin. So first of all, in, uh, I think about 1961-ish or so, um, the Holy Office put a kind of a warning on the Chardin's works and said, you know, these are not safe, don't read them. Um, now, to be fair, the Holy Office was delating theologians right and left, <laughs> right, from, you know, from the beginning of the 20th century up until the Council. Many characters who have since been fully rehabilitated and even made cardinals in the Church, right? So there was a, there was a knee-jerk, you know, just because somebody made it onto the Holy Office's bad list in, say, you know, 1940 or 50 or 60, doesn't mean that they were a terrible theologian. It meant that, you know, there was a there was an air of suspicion about anything that was kind of uh, uh, anything that invoked the idea of development uh -huh. was was held under suspicion of modernism, right? Mm. And uh, I'll give you an example. So there is a, a, a Dominican theologian and historian of theology named Shinu. Uh, famous, very famous Dominican, who wrote a book about Thomas Aquinas that, you know, today would be on anybody's bookshelf about Aquinas. And he made the claim that Aquinas's theology developed, you know, that the early Thomas was different from the later Thomas, and, you know, he made some other claims of the sort, you know. And at a time when Thomism was understood to be a kind of pristine, perfect system of metaphysical uh, truth that, that, you know, perfectly encapsulated uh, the Catholic position. And Shinu was... Put on, you know, put on notice. All right, Henri de Lubac um, was uh, Pius XII published encyclical, seemingly against de Lubac's position and humani generis, and uh, and saying, you know, de Lubac wasn't safe. Well, the um, the the French bishops are now moving to have de Lubac, I think, named a doctor of the church, or at least to be canonized. Really? Yeah. Right. And uh, and John Paul II made him a cardinal. Right. So so you know you can you can say, hey, let's be cautious about this for now. Let a few decades roll by, and then we'll reassess in light of present knowledge. Like that's a position the church has been doing with a lot of people. Okay, mm -hmm. okay. With with de Chardin, he's been rehabilitated in a similar way. Okay. So there's been an official recommendation that the warning placed on his works in '61 or '62, whenever it was, should be lifted. I don't know if that's been lifted or not, but I mean the recommendation was made by you know papal theologians that it should be. Uh -huh. And for practical purposes, he has been rehabilitated because Paul VI. John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis have all made favorable mentions to his work. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, that's you, you got the last four popes all quoting him. Uh, that 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 
that's pretty rehabilitated. Okay? I'd say now, so, yeah. Now, let me get to the false dichotomy. Um, the, um, first of all, you, you can cite someone and find them interesting and maybe valuable without in any way agreeing to the totality of their system. Really good example of that would be the early Christian writer Origen of Alexandria, who's, who held some manifestly incorrect views about the, the nature of angels, the nature of redemption, uh, a, a number of issues, okay? And they've been censured, and, and Origenism is definitely out. And yet, no theologian of the first four centuries had a greater influence and continues to have a greater influence on the structure of Catholic theology. So he could be wrong in some particulars and yet be massively influential and positively influential on great minds like like uh, the Cappadocian Fathers, like, like Ambrose, like Augustine. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church reflects the teaching of origin about the nature of biblical interpretation. Uh, Bishop Barron... Uh, is a huge Origen fan, right? But he can still be wrong. Origen can be wrong in particulars, right? Now, with the Shaldah, I think we're in a different situation. You, you have somebody who, who may not have been either a brilliant anthropologist or theologian, and yet who had some interesting ideas uh, that have since developed way beyond him by much more competent hands. Okay. Right? And so that's why I'm saying he, he, you don't have to conclude that he's a mystic. And, uh, uh, and even if he were incompetent as a scientist and theologian, it doesn't mean either that people couldn't cite him with interest because he had some interesting ideas. Mm, yeah. Is that helpful for you, Jeff? That's very helpful. Thank you so much. So I, I don't have to throw away my books by Chardin. Well, I hope you don't throw away books by anyone. Right. I mean, unless, you know, it's like, you know, Satanism or something. Yeah. But I mean, like, you know, if if you're if you're of a theological disposition and your goal is to give a rational account of the Catholic faith, you can't do that without engaging a lots of lots of <clears throat> points of view. Mm, yeah. And so, you know, I mean, I, I hope you read all kinds of bad books because bad things need to be refuted, you know, and I hope you write middling books and I hope you get a broad view about the discipline of theology and the discipline of philosophy and how they develop over time. And you just can't do that without reading people who are wrong. Yeah. Keep reading, Jeff. Thanks so much for your call. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from uh, Matt watching us on YouTube this afternoon. He says, since Jesus is fully man and fully God, whose words are recorded in sacred scripture? Jesus the man, Jesus the God, or both simultaneously? Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely, totally. Couldn't agree more. Hundred oh percent, right? So, so the way the Catholic Church looks at the person of Christ is, it is the person who acts, not the nature. You know, like when 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 Tom Price gets on the radio and talks, it's not his human nature that's talking; it's Tom Price who talks, not his nature, right? Yeah. And you know, if he had two of them, it would still be the person of Tom Price who's talking. And with Jesus Christ, it's not his human nature that's talking. It's not his divine nature that's talking. It's the divine human person who's talking. Now, uh, earlier in the last call, I was talking about the church father, Origen. Um, Origen made a distinction, and he said, you know, when we read, say, the book of Genesis, he says it's, it's the pre-incarnate Christ. It's the divine logos who's speaking. Mm -hmm. So there's a sense in which the divinity of Christ is, is at work 
in all of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. But when we're talking about the, the recorded words of the incarnate Lord, Jesus who lived, Jesus of Nazareth, born of the Blessed Virgin, who lived in the first century and died and crucified under Pontius Pilate, then we're talking about the acts and words of a person who was a divine man. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you, Matt, for your question via YouTube. Marcus is listening today in Columbus on the Blowtorch St. Gabriel Radio. Hey there, Marcus. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, thanks for taking my call. So I am a Latin Catholic who's been moving more and more towards the Byzantine rite. And I have no problem or no difficulties with venerating post-schism saints. But I guess my question is, why are certain particular post-schism saints that were outspoken in their rejection of the papacy and thus could qualify as formal heretics, like I've heard Palamas falls under this, I don't know if that's true, why is veneration of these saints permitted? Okay, thanks. So, uh, and to be sure, I'm a little bit out of my legal wheelhouse here, so I can't give you a definitive list of, of, of Orthodox saints who are lawfully venerated within a Byzantine Rite Catholic Church. All right, I, have a, I, have, I have some friends who can enlighten me on this. I've got Byzantine Catholic friends who are real up-to-date on this stuff. I'm not, so I, I hesitate to be, a little, to be too specific. But, um, but let me speak in general terms, what just kind of strikes me. And this, again, is sort of my layman's commentary, not, not on a, a lot of deep reflection. First of all, you know, there are a lot of people who are in heaven that are not canonized saints within the Latin Church, and I just recognize that right off the bat. Secondly, there are, um, uh, you know, the, the Church doesn't take a position of proselytism towards the Orthodox, right? So it doesn't say, you know, my goal as a Catholic evangelist is to convert Orthodox people to Latin Rite Catholicism or even Eastern Rite Catholicism. Um, it's to work towards the reunion of the separated communities. So the, the, the ecumenical effort is at, the, is at the level of, you know, patriarchates and dioceses, um, and uh, uh, not at the level of, of, of sheep-stealing individuals. Okay, right? all right. And so within that frame of reference, you can have somebody like, oh, what's his name? I can't think of the Russian. You're going to think of it in a minute, Charles, uh, Tom. Um, 20th century prominent Russian Orthodox theologian who, was, who, who remained within the Orthodox Church but was you know, publicly, vocally, expressly in praise of the doctrine of the papacy. You know, mm. That's different from what you're asking, but yeah, you know he yeah. he clearly believed in the papacy. But his response to that was not for himself to go and join the Catholic Church and the Latin Rite, but was to urge his communion forward in ecumenical efforts. You know that 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 disposition is one that's perfectly intelligible. And then and thirdly, um, and this I know my my Byzantine friends would confirm, there is a world of difference between between sort of outright rejecting uh, the primacy of the Pope. Uh, on the one hand, and strongly objecting to the way that primacy has been lived historically in relationship to the Catholic East. And there is no doubt that, um, that popes and bishops in the West have at times taken a, a, an attitude and a, and a political stance with respect to the Eastern part of the Church that is morally indefensible. I didn't say theologically indefensible. Yeah. I said morally indefensible, mm. the kind of condescension um, and disregard um, and outright humiliation that has sometimes been heaped on uh, uh, Eastern Rite Christians at the hands of, uh, of, of Latinists is, uh, is, uh, is, is inexcusable. And I, I could, you know, I could, if I, had, if I had to be forced to, 
you know, I could imagine a moral universe where a person could be critical, like John Henry Newman was. Newman was very critical of the definition of papal infallibility without formally denying it. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Where a yes. person could take the position that the way this, and I, I know Byzantine Catholics who take this point of view, mm-hmm. the way the dogma was articulated, the timing, uh, the mode of its presentation, um, the behavior of the Pope at the Council with respect to the Eastern Rite Catholics that were present, that all of those things could be reasonably objected to and vociferously objected to. And one might even invoke the language of the church in a derogatory way, but within this larger ecclesial moral context, without actually formally denying the primacy of the Pope as such. Okay. Very good. And uh, thank you so much uh, for your call. Here's a quick question from Tyson, who says, In Revelation 22.8, John fell down to worship at the feet of the angel and was rebuked. How does Dr. Andrews explain this form of worship when we differentiate, uh, differentiate worship from veneration? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So there is uh, a command in sacred scripture that we render um, to each what is his due, honor to whom honor, custom to whom custom, tribute to whom tribute. And you better believe that in antiquity, when Paul gave that command, he did it in a world where he knew the kind of veneration and honor that was demanded by, say, the Roman emperor, mm. right? Yeah. And acts of obeisance and, sub- and, and personal subjugation that would strike horror and revulsion into the heart of any sort of democratic republican in the modern post-enlightenment west right <laughs> and uh, and yet um and for that matter with respect to even the davidic monarchy or, or, or jewish monarchies mm-hmm. um uh, uh and yet those those kind of behaviors would have been understood as as normal and maybe even appropriate for a christian to take in a way that signals yeah this this is a person to whom i owe duty and deference and authority and obeisance and so forth um that's very different from rendering, sacrificing to the genius of Caesar as to a god, mm. right? And so when we seek condemnations of, of uh, angel worship in Scripture, I think we have to understand them as, like, these were mistaken acts of potential idolatry rather than simple acts of reverence. And there is a distinction. Scripture draws the distinction. There you go. Hey, Tyson, thanks for uh, your question via YouTube this afternoon. Glad that you could uh, get in with us. Glad we could get that question on at the end of the show. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate you and all that you do. We appreciate all of our listeners. You can check out this program Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, uh, or if you wish, if you prefer, the podcast by going to EWTN.com, click on radio, then click on Podcast Central. On behalf of our fantastic team, Charles, Matt, and Rich, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us today. See you tomorrow on the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Have a wonderful day and God bless. See you then.